0: Thank you, Steve, and choir and orchestra. Steve uh, begins Christmas a little earlier than I do. I think he actually begins in about August getting ready for the pageant, but I'm not ready until about the 24th, so we're going to continue today with our journey through the book of Acts, and uh, we come to the city of Athens today. Now, Athens is one of my favorite international cities, not because it is necessarily a beautiful city. In fact, I really don't think it is. But the Plaka is there, the Parthenon is there, Mars Hill is there. And so, because of the history of Athens, I especially enjoy visiting there. Aristophanes wrote of Athens, O thou our Athens Violet-wreathed, brilliant, most enviable city. And it was a city of culture during New Testament times. Albert Barnes wrote, Athens was the most celebrated city of Greece and was distinguished for the military talents, the learning, the eloquence, and the politeness of its inhabitants. So it was recognized in antiquity as being a city of culture. It was also a very religious city. Pausanias wrote, the Athenians greatly surpassed others in their zeal for religion. Now then, during the time of the New Testament, during the time of the book of Acts, there were two primary philosophies in Athens. The first was the philosophy of the Stoics. Davis' Dictionary of the Bible says, the Stoics distinguished matter and force As the ultimate principles in the universe and the force working everywhere, they called reason, providence, God, and the highest good is virtue. So one of the philosophies of of that time was the philosophy of the Stoics, and the other was the Epicureans. Davis wrote, the Epicureans were mostly men of soft temperament, the very opposite of the Stoics. Tim Zukas wrote, their philosophy was based around the idea that pleasure was the highest goal in life. So when we hear about the Epicureans, that's normally what we think of, that it is a commitment or a philosophy of pleasure. But he goes on, they, however, defined pleasure not as transitory thrill-seeking But as achieving a sort of peaceful enjoyment, they followed a sort of situational ethics where moral decisions were based on which choice would yield the most pleasure for the most people. All right, now then with that setting in mind, that it is an historic city, There were two primary philosophy in Athens at the time of the New Testament. Let's look at our text, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse number 16, when Paul comes to Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We, we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood in the midst of the Arapagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. All right, so when Paul came to Athens, he came to a pagan center. In verse number 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So understand that Athens was a very religious city. In fact, it has been said that it was easier to find a God in Athens than to find a man in Athens. In verse number 23... The scripture says, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. Now, it could be said that their worship was antichrist. Now, I say that because Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 4, speaking of the antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship. We are familiar with the term antichrist. It has two possible meanings. It can mean against Christ, anti-against Christ, which is the way most of us understand it. But it also can mean instead of. So instead of Christ. In other words, a substitute for Christ. Westcott wrote, one who assuming the guise of Christ opposes Christ. All right, so it could be said that it was a worship of Antichrist. In verse number 23, he continues, What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Vine says the literal translation of those words is, What not knowing you worship. They were low information worshipers. What not knowing you worship. Now, Paul says, That you worship in ignorance. What you worship in ignorance. The word ignorance that is used there is the word from which we get the word agnostic. It's always a little amusing to me because sometimes I speak with people and they say, well, I'm an agnostic. Now, it seems to me, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that oftentimes when they say that, that there is this intellectual superiority I'm an agnostic. Well, the word itself means not to know. It means ignorance. It means that I I just don't know. Well, that's what Paul said here, that they worship in ignorance. Now, folks, most people, if not all people, worship something. Billy Graham said that he had been all over the world, and no matter how primitive the society might be, he said people everywhere worship something. Now, oftentimes they don't know what they worship. They worship in ignorance. And sometimes they don't even know that they worship. For instance, has it ever perplexed you the religious fervor that so many in the extreme environmental movement have? I mean, a religious fervor. Why is that? They climb up in trees to save the trees and do all of these things. Why do they do those things? Why is there such a fervor with extreme environmentalists? Because it is a religion. It is pantheism. It is the worship of Mother Earth. Now there are some people who worship the earth. There are some people who worship religion. In other words, all religion is good. All religion should be respected. All religion should be lifted up. It is good. And so they actually worship religion. I see cars oftentimes that have the little bumper sticker on that. It says coexist. And then it has all the symbols of the world's various religions. Well, what they are saying is that all religions are equal. All religions are good. Therefore, they are to be respected. And it must be that most people seem to believe that. That all religions are good. I mean, we worship religion. All religions are good. All religions are to be respected. Senator McCain said recently that when a Muslim says Allah Akbar, that it is no different than a Christian saying, thank you God. Really? I'm not aware of people running for cover when a Christian says, thank you God. But there is this idea that all religions are good. And so we end up worshiping religion. There are some who worship at the altar of sex. There are some who worship self. Narcissism is is prevalent in our society today. You know, we have so long told everybody that you are special, so nobody's special. I mean, if everybody's special, then nobody's special. But we have convinced a generation, and so narcissism has become an issue. So there's pagan worship. But here, here's what I want you to see. Even though in the world, oftentimes it is pagan, God always has His witnesses present. Did you know that? That's what Paul was doing in Athens. Paul was there as a witness for God in a city that was filled with idols. In a city where they, just in case they had left one out, they erected an altar to the unknown God because they didn't want to leave any out. There, Paul was placed to be a witness for the true God, the Lord Jesus You see the same thing during the time of Noah's day. The Bible says that during the time of Noah, that man was given over to sin. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So during the time of Noah, the Bible says that man was given over to sin that his thoughts were evil continually, but Noah was there as a witness for God. He was God's witness. During the time of Elijah, Baal was the dominant religion of that time, but God had his witnesses. You remember the story, Elijah was feeling sorry for himself, and uh, it's when he was going to get under the juniper tree and lick his wounds and have a pity party and all of that. And, and there he says, God, you know, I'm trying to serve you and there's nobody else serving you. I'm the only one that you can count on. There's nobody else here. It's just you and me. And the Lord said in First Kings nineteen eighteen, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God said, Elijah, you're not alone. He said, I have 7,000 witnesses there. You may not know who they are, but I have them there. In a pagan society where the people were worshiping Baal, the Bible says that God had his witnesses there. Folks, we live in a pagan world that is increasingly becoming non-Christian, our own country. But I want you to realize that you are here at this time As a witness of Jesus Christ. The Lord has you here at this time. To be a witness of Christ. Now I think that we're going to have to change our attitude somewhat. Because most of us still think that we are the moral majority. I'm not sure that's true any longer. I think it might be more accurate to say that we must be a faithful remnant. And I think probably that is where we are today. But God has his witnesses present. All right. Well, then how can we be effective witnessing to an unbelieving world? If we live in a world that is unbelieving, if we are supposed to be the witnesses of Christ to this world, how do we do it? It begins with observation because we respond to what we see. So it begins with observation. Now look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. The word beholding that is used there means to theorize. It means to look closely. So what I want you to understand is that Paul now is in Athens, a city that is filled with idols. And the Bible says that he is looking closely. He is observing. He is theorizing. What did he see? When he looked at the city, what did he see? Well, it wasn't a chamber of commerce visit that he was making or observation that he was making. He looked beneath the architecture. He looked beneath the art. He looked beneath the culture. He looked beneath all of those things, and he saw that the people were lost. That's what he saw. He looked beneath the wealth. He looked beneath the acceptance. He looked beneath all those things. And he saw lost people. People who were on the road to hell. That's very much the observation of Jesus when he looked at Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34. "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. When Jesus looked at the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, what did he see? He saw lost people. He saw people who had rejected the grace of God. Let me ask you a question. What do you see when you look at our city? Well, there are some of you who would say, well, you know, I, I, I see its great history, and it does have a great history, a significant history within our nation, and this church is a part of that history, and there are those who see the the history of Columbia. The beauty, the, you know, it may not be so much to you, but if you grew up in West Texas like I did, this is a beautiful city. I mean, you have hills and trees and three rivers I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful place. There are people who see that. So there are some who look at Columbia and they see it from an economic viewpoint. They look at the economy of the city. But folks, as the witnesses of Jesus Christ here at this time, when we see the city, we must see its lostness. We must see its need for Jesus Christ because that is the thing that motivates us to become a witness. Now look again at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. Barnes says, The mind of Paul was greatly concerned or agitated, doubtless with pity and distress at their folly and danger. He was motivated by what he saw. Ladies and gentlemen, when we see the lostness of our community, then we will be motivated to share Jesus if we see the lostness. That's one of the reasons that I have been so proud of, of our students, our young people. We had the My Hope America, Billy Graham, emphasis on evangelism reaching people. And our students got involved in it. I mean, they began to witness. They began to tell others about Jesus and, and showed the video. Austin Haney rented a theater and passed out tickets at school so that the kids could come and hear the gospel of Christ. Coach Shaw, right? he, he got his football team involved. And so, so many of our people got involved in that. See, that's what happens to us when we begin to understand that people are lost. When we begin to understand what that means, that they are lost without Christ, then that motivates us to become a witness. So it begins with observation as we see it. That motivates us to begin sharing the gospel, and we must do everything we can to share the good news of Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. Paul was absolutely committed to getting the gospel of Christ to people, whatever that meant. So the Bible says that he, he took the gospel to the synagogue. Look at Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. The word reasoning, Vine says, means to converse, to argue, to dispute, to meet in order to discuss. Paul was willing to go into the synagogue and discuss with them, have a conversation with them about his belief in Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. Not just the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. In verse number 17, he continues. And in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be present, he went into the marketplace to share the gospel. When he was in prison, he shared the gospel. When he was with the Philippian jailer and he told him about Jesus and led him to Christ even there. But the point I want you to understand is that he used every opportunity, every venue that was available to him to share the gospel. Are you willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? To see the lostness of our community and to be motivated to share the gospel and use every means available. See, that's what I I want this church to be. I want it to be a a birthing, a spiritual birthing station. You know, I know Baptist Hospital is known for for all those babies that are born over there. I I want First Baptist Church to be known as a place where people get saved, where they come and hear the gospel. And every Sunday school class should be sharing the gospel, and every Bible study should be sharing the gospel. Every group that meets should be sharing the gospel. So the church is a place where people should come and hear the gospel of Christ business. You're a Christian. You have the opportunity. When you have the opportunity, to share the gospel at school, wherever you are. I'm grateful that finally, after all these years that the church is beginning to use the media to share the gospel of Christ. I'm grateful for some of these Christian films that that are being shown. We should support them. Because it's a means of sharing. We use every tool that is available to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what Paul did. The Bible says that he went to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace, he went to the prison, wherever he could go. He shared the gospel with Christ. Now, what did he proclaim? What did he say when he shared the gospel? Well, first of all, that God is the creator. In verse number 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, the Epicureans denied that. They said, no, the the world came into being by chance. There was no creator. came into the world by chance. Unbelievers pretty much still say the same thing. Unbelievers would tell us today that God didn't create the world that there were some gases that exploded, and, and here we are. I was talking with Eric the other day, and, and um, we were talking about diabetes because he deals with that. But he, he was telling me about this little piece of equipment that they have now, you know, and you plug some information in there, and it'll give you a little bit of insulin according to the need and all that stuff. And as he told me about it, I, began, I said, you know what? Isn't it amazing that God has made a pancreas that does all of that on its own? I mean, God has placed within you a pancreas that does that on its own. And to believe that all of this, I just don't have that kind of faith. To believe that it just all happened. And the Bible says in Hebrews eleven three: 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. The worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. God took nothing and made something. He didn't take something and fashion it into something else. He took nothing and made something. He said, so God is the creator. And then he said, God is knowable. This God is knowable. Verse 27, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ We know him And he says that God gives us purpose In verse number 28 For in him we live and move and exist As even some of your own poets have said For we also are his offspring Now that that is interesting He says that it is God who gives us purpose You see, the Epicureans believe that pleasure gave you purpose Education believes that knowledge Gives you purpose Religion believes that Ritual gives you purpose. Business says that profit gives you purpose. Paul says God gives you purpose. You want purpose in life? You'll only find it when you understand a relationship to God. Because God created you. And then he says that God is also the judge in verse number 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, that one day we will all stand before the judge of the universe? That's what Paul said. He is the judge. I read an article the other day, Halle Berry said, I believe in God. I just don't know if that God is Jehovah, Buddha, or Allah. She'll know one day Madonna said, I go to synagogue. I study Hinduism. All paths lead to God. No, no, they don't. But one day she will stand before God just like you will, just like I will. Folks, we live in a world that is unbelieving. And we are to be witnesses to that world, but our call is to change the world. We are not to adapt to the world. We are to change the world to conform to scripture. How do we do that? By understanding that God is more than a philosophy, that God is more than a religion. In Colossians 2.8, Paul wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He goes on to say we change the world when we understand that God is more than philosophy and religion. When we understand that God is near, as he said in verse 27, that he is knowable. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You can know God. Can you imagine that? That you can know God? That God will judge One day we will stand before the judge. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we see the response. Some rejected in verse number 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. There are those, and I understand that. And my guess is there are some listening to me today who would do the same thing. You hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to give his life, that you might be saved. And there were some who would reject. They sneer. They reject. There were others who said, let me think about this. And verse number 32 continues. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. They said, you know, let me think about that a little bit. Now, now, that's not a bad place to be. You hear the gospel and say, let me think about that a little bit. There's only a couple of dangers. One is that Jesus comes back before you make a commitment. That's a possibility. And the other is that your heart is hardened towards God. And that also is a possibility. You see, every time you hear the gospel, your heart becomes more tender or more hard. And the Bible says that your heart can become hardened to the gospel. So there were some who said, I'm not, I'm not interested in this. There were others who said, let me think about it. Best response is in verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. That is the best response. The best response to to the gospel is to receive Jesus Christ. Now, let me conclude. We live in a pagan world, and it is becoming increasingly pagan. God has us here at this time to impact that world with the gospel. And ladies and gentlemen, I think what we have to do is to understand that the world is lost, and we build a bridge to that world. Now, I heard the story about two brothers who had adjoining farms. They fellowshiped together, their families were together, all of those things. They shared farming equipment. They did all of those things together. But then there came a time when they got into some kind of a disagreement, and then there was a fracture within the relationship and so forth, and it got worse and worse, and then they were separated and stopped talking to each other. One day there was a carpenter who came by to the elder brother and asked him if he had any work. He said, well, yeah, I said, I do. He took him outside and he said, "Um, you see that farm over on the other side over there? And he said, yes. He said, that's my younger brother's farm. And he said, do you see that creek that separates the two farms? He said, yes. He said, that used to be a meadow. He said, my brother and I don't speak to each other. And he said, to spite me, he took a bulldozer and broke the levee and flooded that Meadow with water and now I have a creek. He did it just to spite me. He said, what I'd like for you to do is to build an eight-foot fence out here separating these two farms so I don't ever have to look at him again. The older brother then left and went to town. He had some work to do and so forth and he was gone for a while. And when he came back, the carpenter, rather than building a fence, had built a bridge across the creek And he saw the carpenter and his brother walking across the bridge. So he went down to see what had happened. And when he got there, his younger brother stuck out his hand and said, I am so sorry. He said, you're a better man than I. I'm so sorry for the problems we've had. And there they hugged and embraced and were restored. Folks, that's what we have to do. Rather than build fences... We need to build bridges. We need to reach out to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the love of Jesus Christ, not compromising the gospel because it's true. But we have to have the spirit that builds, fences, builds bridges instead of fences. I pray that we will be a church that builds those bridges to a world that is lost, that we might bring them into a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Our gracious Father, we come to you at this time asking that you give us the passion and the commitment to be strong witnesses of Jesus. Lord, I pray even today during this invitation for those who have never trusted Christ, some assume have rejected, some have been thinking about it. I pray today that they will receive you. Bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir is going to sing. If you've never trusted Christ, would you commit your life to him today? If you're looking for a church home, my doors are open to you. You come. As we sing, you come. I greet you as you do.